Today, uh, we mentioned this in Sunday school when we talked about the authority of Scripture, especially the authority of New Testament Scripture, especially uh, whether the New Testament writers knew they were writing Scripture with the authority of Scripture or whether they were just some nice people who followed Jesus and wrote down their memoirs or reflections about Jesus. And then, and then the church decided later that this was authoritative. And we said that the people who wrote scripture, including the New Testament writers, including Paul, understood they were very conscious of the fact that they were writing scripture, that their words were on par with the rest of scripture, that had, having the same authority as the rest of God's word. And we mentioned briefly that this will become very important as we get to some thorny, you know, allegedly thorny parts of Scripture, which, if you paid attention to what we read, uh, I believe this passage falls under that category. There's no question that today, part of the reason why this is a thorny part of Scripture, is today we are embroiled in a gender revolution. There's no question about that. Basically, where the, the, the world at large is trying to erase any distinction between men and women. And none so clearly in the transgender movement, where basically, you know, strip away all of the talking points that the world makes about transgenderism or the transgender movement. Basically, what it boils down to is biological men wanting to become women, whether it's in the field of sports, where biological men are now dressing up and, you know, trying to, you know, taking hormones and whatever, trying to become women and compete in women's sports, uh, whether it's in the uh, arena of politics or, or in culture and social uh, uh, spheres, uh, you have uh, men, biological men, more and more so wanting to be women or be, you know, as far as surgery and whatever else they can do with their hormones, you know, as much as they can be uh, about women. You don't hear so much uh, about biological women who want to compete in spheres of men, which tells you something about the nefariousness of the transgender movement. It's not equal. It's not equal. Right? You don't hear about biological women wanting to race in men's swim meets or men's track and field. But you do have biological men who not only want to race in women's sports, but they want to be in the same locker rooms and be around that. Okay, So you kind of see, once you strip away all the rhetoric, you kind of see the, that movement for what it is. But essentially, it is a world, a culture trying to strip away any difference between men and women. And so obviously, for a text like today's, they would utterly reject today's text because the Bible is unashamed in talking about differences between men and women. And not only differences between men and women, but different roles between men and women, right? Different functions and different callings, different instructions even to men and women that flow out of these differences. 
But I don't want to just critique how the world might view these verses. I want to talk about us. You know, this is a small church. We are meeting here Sunday afternoon. I suppose none of you are here because you are forced to. Okay? None of you are here because this is a mega church and you're just here because your friends are here or your family is here and you have nowhere else to go on a Sunday and you're just, you're just coming because you have to. Right? All of you are here because you want to be here. Right? You're here because you want to hear God's word. You want to praise God and you want to worship him in spirit and in truth. But I wonder how many of us, including myself, when we read those verses that we read today, had a little recoil in yourself, had a little bit of doubt saying, did I just really read what I read? Does God really mean what he says? Maybe there's a way where we can soften, quote unquote, soften God's teaching about men and women. You know, maybe, maybe there's a little bit of us, maybe that recoils. Yes, because we're sinners. But I think also because the gender revolution affects us too. Right? We, we think the gender revolution happens out there with all the unbelievers. But the fact that we might read these, this passage and be a little bit shocked, maybe a little bit ashamed of God's word, maybe want to, as a gut reaction, want to massage God's word so that it becomes a little bit better sounding to our ears. Maybe we've been affected by the gender revolution. So this is what we're going to do today. Um, we're actually going to break this passage into two parts. So today, there are basically four instructions in the verses that we read. First, the Bible says men everywhere must pray without wrath and doubting. Second, the Bible says women must adorn themselves modestly with godliness and good works. Third, the third teaching is women must not teach or have authority over men. And fourth, the Bible teaches here that women will be saved in childbearing. What we're going to do today uh, we're, uh, with this passage, we're going to split it into two parts. Today, we're going to talk about the first two, that men everywhere must pray and that women must adorn themselves modestly. And then the next time that we preach, part two, we're going to talk about the second two, that women must not teach or have authority and then women will be saved in childbearing. The next time we preach on this is going to be the last Sunday in August. Okay, so just as you know, if everybody so everybody's aware, it'll that'll be the last Sunday in August uh, when we tackle the second part. Okay, maybe the more challenging part. So be so come for that. Okay, but today we're going to focus on the first two. I'm not trying to cop out. It's just there's too much to talk about. Okay, and. Hopefully, by the end of today, we will see how even the first two teachings are challenging to us. It challenges the gender revolution, but also challenges us. This is how we're going to do it. We're going to talk about each of these instructions. There are four instructions. We're going to talk about the two instructions. We're going to talk about each of these instructions in this way. First, we're going to look at what does the verse say? If we could strip away 
in all of our cultural references, if we could just become robots, okay, or if we could just become AI, without any culture, okay, without any exposure to the outside world, if we were just robots and we just strictly analyze the words of scripture, what does scripture say? Next, we're going to ask, what is the biblical basis? Are these teachings rooted in some other part of scripture? Are these teachings rooted in Old Testament scripture? Or are they just figments of the author's imagination, or maybe worse, figments of his personal opinion or personal prejudices, okay? Because that's where a lot of people go to throw away these parts of scriptures when they say, well, Paul's just writing because he's a prejudiced man, trapped in his prejudiced world. So we're going to ask the question, do these verses actually have some kind of biblical basis elsewhere? And then last, we're going to talk about what is the cultural challenge? What is the challenge to us living in this culture today? So first, let's talk about that first instruction. Uh, if you still have your Bibles open, look at verse 8. 1 Timothy 2, verse 8, where the Bible says, I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere. There, the word for men is the Greek word for biological males. Okay, there's a Greek word for ma mankind in general that's sometimes translated as men. Okay, but there's a Greek word that's mankind in general. That's not the Greek word used here. The Greek word used here is there's actually Greek words for biological males, and that's the word that's used here. Okay, I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting if we only looked at the words of scripture this is a straightforward and simple teaching god commands men biological men to pray lifting holy hands when the bible says holy hands that word uh, in the language means devout pious uh, reverent hands. It's not perfect righteousness. It's not utter holiness or complete holiness, sinlessness. Okay, the Greek word for perfect righteousness is actually a different Greek word. The word that's used here is not that word that means perfect righteousness because none of us are perfectly righteous, right? And so none of us are going to be able to pray lifting our perfectly righteous hands. None of us have perfectly righteous hands. But this word here simply means a devoted person, a, a pious person, somebody who is reverent, has reverence towards God. The Bible further clarifies, immediately further clarifies in the same verse, what it means by holy hands. If you look at that verse, it says... Lifting holy hands without wrath and without doubting. So part of what it means to pray in a devoted manner, in a reverent manner, in a pious manner, means you pray without wrath, without being angry, 
and without doubting. Now, some of you might say, well, that's a little odd. Who would ever pray with wrath? And who would ever pray with doubting? Well, in order to understand, we got to look at the context, okay? And we talked about this in the previous sermon, but I'll just, we'll just look at the uh, previous text again briefly. Chapter 2 begins with God's instruction for men everywhere to pray for their leaders. And not just the good leaders or the leaders they agree with, but for all who are in authority, for kings and all everywhere who are in authority. Now, think of your leaders, of your city, of your country. Think of some of the world leaders, kings and those in authority around the world. Think about what they have done and what they are doing and where they are leading us. I mean, before church today, we were talking about the rise of electricity and the costs of, of cooling your home and why that is. It's because of our leaders. Now think about your leaders and how it makes you feel. Doesn't it make you feel angry? Doesn't it make you doubt whether God can do anything to this leader to make things better for his people? What happens when we get angry and taken over by anger? We stop praying, right? What happens when we doubt, when we think God can't do anything about our president, about that king over there in Russia, about that king over there in China? What happens when we doubt that God can do anything for those people or with those people? We stop to pray, right? It makes us stop praying. Here, the Bible specifically teaches us to pray while lifting our hands. Now, I noticed, and I'm including myself in this, I don't pray lifting my hands. So what does the Bible mean to pray lifting your hands? Does lifting your hands literally mean lifting your hands? Or is there some kind of metaphor or some kind of deeper meaning to this? Well, here we have to talk about something called the regulative versus the normative principle of worship. Okay, just some brief definitions. The regulative principle of worship says that we can only do and worship what the Bible has prescribed. So whatever the Bible talks about, those are the only things we do in worship. That's the regulative principle. The normative principle says, well, you can do anything you want in worship as long as the Bible doesn't forbid it. So if the Bible says you can't do it, then you can't do it. But if the Bible doesn't say anything about it, then you're free to do Whatever. That's the normative principle. Obviously, you can see that the regulative principle is smaller. And the normative principle is wider. You could, you know, it's more liberal. Right. It's yeah, right. You could do anything then. Right. You can also see from that that the regulative principle is more biblical. OK, whatever the Bible prescribes. That's what we do in worship. 
So, when the Bible here says to lift your hands in prayer, that's part of the regulative principle. That's a prescription, and the fact that we might not feel so comfortable lifting our hands in prayer, myself included. I'm not throwing anybody under the bus. Maybe I'm throwing myself under the bus. Okay, you know, you are asking me to pray the invocation prayer. And here I am. I prepped this passage, and I'm saying it's the regulative principle. And I told myself on my way over here, when I pray, I'm going to lift my hands. And guess what? Something in me said, "Oh, can't lift my hands." I think it's culture. It's our culture that holds us back from obeying God's word. It's that simple. There's. It's not a metaphor. It's a command. Lift your hands. In prayer, and there's a biblical basis for this, right? Paul isn't just pulling this out of his back pocket and saying, "Well, I think you should pray, lifting your hands. I think that's more proper." It's not Paul's opinion. There is a biblical basis for this throughout all of Scripture. We actually read some of this. Psalm 134. Okay, if you open up your bulletins, uh. And eventually, at the end of worship, we're going to recite Psalm 134. But this is what Psalm 134 says. Behold, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who by night stand in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord, the Lord who made heaven and earth. Bless you from Zion. The interesting part about Psalm 134 is these are commands; these are imperatives. Okay, there are many other psalms where the psalmist says, "When I prayed to God, I lifted my hands to His holy hill, where I lifted my hands to Zion." But but those you could say those are more reflections of, of the of the you could argue. Okay, even though I would say those are commands also, but one could argue. That those were were just the psalmist expressing his way of praying, okay. But very clearly here in one thirty four, these are imperatives. These are commands. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. There is a biblical basis. Paul's not just coming up with something on his own, you know, being creative. He's expounding what Scripture says elsewhere. He's reminding us: lift your hands when you pray. So, in this first instruction, God commands us to pray. And the cultural challenge for us is we're not used to this, right? We're not used. Some churches are, you know.、Um, I don't know, Rod. You know, Church of the Brethren, because you grew up in that church, right? I don't know whether they did this. I know some churches are are very unabashed in in raising their hands, right? Um, but it's a cultural challenge for us. And think about this: this instruction is directed to men. Now, I'm not saying that women shouldn't pray. Obviously, not. There are other parts of Scripture that talk about all people praying. Okay, and I'm not saying that women shouldn't pray with their hands lifted up high, right? Because obviously, there are other parts of Scripture that instruct. Everyone to pray, but here the instruction is specifically to men. Why? 
I think it has to go back to that part about anger and doubt. Okay, and this is where we might get into a little bit of hot water again, going against our culture, right? Why does the Bible single out men and warns men about anger and doubt? Maybe because we are more prone to anger and doubt. Maybe because we are more prone in anger to doubt. And we are more prone to stop praying. Especially when it comes to thinking about our leaders, which is the context here, right? My wife and I, we're on the same wavelength in terms of where our politics are and what we think about the world. But it is a fact that I tend to get angrier than my wife. And it is a fact that my wife has to more often calm me down and say, well, you got to calm down, right? And it is a fact that my wife has to remind me to my shame and my sinfulness. And I, you know, I acknowledge that. That I need to pray. Because we as men, we forget. We doubt. And we go into anger more often. With worse consequences for our family and the church. Right? Because the Bible is also clear. Men are the leaders. In church and in the family. And so when your leader stops praying. When your leader gets angry. When your leader gets doubtful, that does not lead the church or the family into a right path, into a right direction. Right? So there is a reason that God points out men. Second teaching. Verses 9 and 10 says, if you look in your Bibles, 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 to 10. Now we direct the teaching to women. In like manner also, the women should uh, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Okay, first, let's talk about what the words mean. If we were just robots, what do the words mean? Women should dress themselves modestly, modest apparel. That word, modest apparel, means well put together, well organized, um, properly organized and well prepared. Okay, that's what the word modest means. It doesn't mean ugly. So, ladies, you can, you can thank the Bible for that. You know, it doesn't mean you have to come to church in sackcloths. Okay, you can dress modestly, well put together, well organized. Uh, this morning, I made breakfast for my family. You know, had hash brown, had eggs, had sausage. I didn't just throw everything in there and say, like, eat this gruel, right? I cooked it, and then I prepared it on the plate so that it looks appetizing for my family. That's what the word means, to properly organize something. To prepare well. Okay, that's what that word means. Women must adorn themselves with, in modest apparel. With propriety. Propriety is a very interesting word. It's basically a word meaning shame. But not only shame for yourself, but also not causing others to be ashamed of you. So it's, it's, it's a word that has this kind of reflexive meaning, right? It's a word that means don't be 
Don't dress in a way that puts yourself to shame. But also, don't dress yourself in a way that others would be ashamed of you. Okay? And then, women are to dress themselves in moderation. This is a colorful word. Moderation means to be sound of mind. To be sober-minded. Sometimes we get the meaning of words by thinking about the antonym or the opposite meaning. So moderation means not insane. Don't dress insane. Moderation means don't be drunk. Don't dress like a drunk would dress. Okay, it's a colorful word. Here's the point. In these verses, God basically tells women, pay attention to who you are on the inside rather than who you are on the outside. Pay attention to your inner beauty rather than your outer beauty, right? That's what the uh, latter part of verse 9 and verse 10 says. Be adorned with good works and godliness rather than braided hair, gold, pearls, or costly clothing. Now we ask the question, where does Paul get this? Is Paul being sexist? Is he being um, a man trapped by his own ancient times, sexist times? And he's, you know, telling women you know, this is a way for him to control women out of his own prejudices? No. There are other parts of Scripture that talk about the same thing. We read some of them. 1 Peter 3, verses 3 to 4, right? Kirk, what you read. Do not... This is addressed to wives, right? Women. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. 1 Peter 3, 3 to 4. Mark, you read that passage in Proverbs, Proverbs 31, about the virtuous woman. Right? Uh, that passage which begins this way. Who can find a virtuous wife? Her worth is far above rubies. And then this is what I want you to do with that passage. Look at all, you know, the, 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 the Bible gives a whole list of, of what a virtuous woman is. Ask yourself the question. How many of these virtues have to do with outer beauty? How many have to do with outer beauty? None. Zero. Instead, what scripture says is this. What is a virtuous wife? She does her husband good and not evil all the days of her life. Verse 12. She works with her hands willingly. Verse 13. She extends her hands, not even just for her family, but to the poor and the needy. Verse 20. She feeds her household. She clothes her, her household. Her household's not afraid of the winter because they have scarlet clothing, which is a very nice kind of clothing. She opens her mouth with, with, with wisdom. Every single characteristic or trait is about inner beauty and none are about outer beauty. And then to kick it all off, to, to kind of the cherry on top, this is what Proverbs 31 verse 30 says at the very end. Charm is deceitful and beauty, outward beauty is passing. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. 
we said at the beginning, our culture today tells us there is no difference between men and women. Our culture recoils at a text like today's where the scripture is so clear in terms of instructing men and instructing women. In fact, we might recoil at these teachings. But the Bible never shies away. Here, the Bible, when it teaches about modest dress, it's directed to women. It's not directed to men. It's directed to women. Why? Could it be because women struggle with the temptation of vanity, outward vanity, more than men? Well, does this mean that men never have the sin of vanity? That men are never, you know, insecure and vain about their outward appearance? No, there are some examples in the Bible. You could argue that Saul, right, the first king of Israel, was struck with vanity so that when other people praised David more than him, he got real jealous. Okay, so Saul probably struggled with vanity. Are there things that men can learn from this command to women? Certainly, yes. Right? The Bible says when, uh, when Samuel was picking out kings, uh, the, 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 the next king to take over for, for Saul. What did, what did God tell Samuel when Samuel went to David's house? And all these handsome, young, strapping men came by and God said, no, 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 that's not him, that's not him. And what did God tell Samuel as he was getting, you know, late in the day, he's probably getting disappointed. God, who are you going to pick? And God said to Samuel, the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Inward beauty. So are there things that men can learn from this text? Yes. But nevertheless, it's still addressed to women. Because women struggle with vanity more than men. When I go out on a date with my wife, I mean, I, I try to dress nice, but I don't really worry about how I dress. You know, I'm not, listen, we go to a fancy restaurant. I'm not dressed in sandals, you know, a t-shirt and a wife beater. Okay, I, I put on a nice shirt. Okay, but it's not to the same level as my wife who worries and worries and worries and worries and worries. So, you know, it's not a critique on my wife. It's just the matter of fact. God created us different. Yes. And the Bible is not ashamed to talk about these differences. And more importantly, the Bible is not afraid to instruct us differently in the areas where we might struggle most. Right? For men who fail as leaders because we get angry and doubt and we cease to pray, the Bible tells us pray. And for women who focus more on their outward beauty than their inward beauty, the Bible says dress modestly. Do not be adorned outwardly beautiful, but inwardly beautiful. So those are the first two teachings. Next time, we're going to go deeper into the weeds, get ourselves into more hot water with the culture, and talk about the next two instructions, all right? The one about uh, women not exercising authority over men, and the one about women uh, saving uh, in, you know, in their salvation through childbirth. We'll talk about what... The Bible says about those, but that's for next time. Uh, this time we're just we've just focused on uh, the first two teachings. May God give us the the strength 
and the faith to hold on, to hold fast to his word in a culture that denies all of this. The culture that denies the basic framework that the Bible lays out, which is there are differences between men and women and instructs us differently between men and women. Okay, may God give us the grace to, to hold on to that. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for uh, this teaching, um, which is so countercultural, uh, and yet uh, so relevant to us. If, we would, if only we would be humble enough to, to, to open our hearts to accept your word and your framework in the way you created men and women and the different instructions that you give to men and women because we struggle differently. Heavenly Father, we, we do ask that you would help us as men uh, to pray more with our hands lifted. And we would pray that you would help our women uh, to be more concerned about who they are inwardly uh, in terms of godliness and good works rather than who they are outwardly. Father, we also do pray for our leaders, for the leader of this city, for the leader of our country, for the leaders of the world who are making news often for, for bad reasons. Lord, we ask that you would change hearts, help them to give our world peace. As you have instructed us to do in your, in your scripture, give us peace, especially your church, so that your church may grow in peace and that the gospel would be spread and more people would become saved. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.